I love being out in the wilderness, being out on the trail. Um, I always have my map and I always have my compass. Um, the funny thing is, it's like I always bring the compass uh, just in case, but I have no idea how to use it. <laughs> but I discovered not too long ago, actually, that there is a sport that utilizes a map and a compass, and it's called orienteering. I had kind of heard of it before, um, but I didn't realize it was such a big deal. And so what it is, there are like these competitions. It's a timed event, and there are meets and orienteering clubs, you know, literally all over the world. And uh, the object is, in this competition, is, is you're given a map by the organizers. And, and the map will be something like this one, you know, it, it has all kinds of uh, of symbols on it and there's the, there's the topography and um, you locate yourself on the map. You've got to orient yourself so that you know where you are in relation to the tree or to the stream uh, or, or to, to the big rock, uh, to the left of the anthill kinds of things. I'm serious, like it can become that detailed on these maps. And, and then you use the compass. and um, the individual or the team, they go to the first checkpoint, and there are these checkpoints all across the, the course. And there's some variations to it, you know, like um, predominantly you have to go to this, this checkpoint first and then to the next one and then to the next one. They're numbered and there's a system for them to, to know if you made it there or not. Some people get real creative with orienteering meets and maybe you're skiing or, or you're, you're, you're biking or, or doing something crazy like that. Um, but anyway, um, the, the object is, uh, is to be the first one to, to get uh, to all of the checkpoints uh, and back to the finish line. But the trick is, it's not clearly marked from one checkpoint to the next. So you've got to use your map, you've got to, to figure out where you are, and then determine what's the best way for me to get there. Uh, that way or that way. Um, so it's a fun kind of race. It was established in the 1800s, um, and it was, it was um, intended for military training for the Swedish military. But it caught on, and normal civilian people figured out, hey, this is a lot of fun. Uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun uh, to start orienteering. Um, about 25 years ago, um, my wife Chan and I, we were appointed by the bishop to an intersection, a crossroads and we're asked to start a new church. And so we started a new United Methodist Church um, in our living room. And one of the things that we did in the beginning was in starting from scratch, we began to, to feel the weight and the responsibility of, like we're starting a new church and we don't wanna mess this up, you know? So it's also though an opportunity like to be the church. Like th there's, Nobody there to say, well, we've never done it this way before, or there's, there's not this long tradition of that particular church, just the tradition of the big church. And so we were asking questions like, what is the church supposed to be? Like, what does God want us to do? And it was really exciting, and it was really refreshing. And so we began to establish like, what, what people will call our core values. Um, so the obvious ones, you know, like, like God wants us to worship, and God wants us to pray, and, and God wants us to, to read our Bibles. God wants us to make disciples. 
Now that was a big one for us. Like, we didn't have any people, so we really needed disciples. So we had conversations about um, how are we going to reach people? How are we going to make disciples? And, and exactly how do you do that? You know? And it's like, well, it's simple, really. You just go find a bunch of lost people. You tell them about Jesus. Um, then they'll become Christians, and then they'll join your church. <laughs> it's not really that simple. But back in those days, there were a lot of people doing things, you know, like um, models or methods for, for reaching people and making disciples. So there would be the revival service, where you would have a big evangelistic service and, and invite unchurched people to come, uh, you know, listen to a sermon. I'm not so sure how many unchurched people came to the revivals. Uh, Aunt Sally from the church over the, uh, across the way over the hill would, would come and, and, uh, and such. But another method was um, going on a Saturday morning into a neighborhood, knocking on a complete stranger's door, and asking them if they want to talk about Jesus. Uh, what we kind of discovered was is that a lot of people feel like faith conversations are really personal. So I might as well just knocked on the door and said, hey, could I see your checkbook? I would love to talk with you about your finances. <laughs> um, we weren't really jiving with either of those ways, even though I know from hearing stories that those, that those ways of connecting with, with people who are lost, um, that they work sometimes. Um, in our conversations, we were never... Um, our experiences were never like that. We came to faith through a friend or a family member. It was more relational. And so we decided to take a more relational approach. And one of the things we decided to do was start an adventure ministry. And I was really pumped about this. And so the idea was, is that those of us who were already Christians, already committed, uh, we would invite our friends, our curious friends, and we would go on these adventures. There would be whitewater rafting adventures, or snow skiing, or water skiing, or backpacking. And the backpacking adventure, um, that one was unforgettable. Uh, we came here uh, to the Shining Rock Wilderness, all the way from Winston-Salem. And before the trip though, the youth guy, Will, who was my really good friend, he says, you know what, we can't lead this adventure unless we kind of do a a pre-trip like we got to scout it out and so we had the map and we we, we figured the way that we were going to go um, we were going to do this gigantic loop and get back to our car here at big big east fork trail but according to the map um, i wasn't sure how to use the compass so it stayed in my pocket but according to the map there was a trail that that ran right along here and we had figured out how this trail would lead us to the next one and that we would loop around um, but we never could find it. Uh, we, just, we just got into the laurel thicket um, and we're a bit frustrated and, and, and finally we found a trail but we were out of time um, and so we headed home. Well the day of the big trip comes and um, there was a, a kind of a development. Uh, Will, who was a little younger than me and who was like a really cool guy, he had all the cool gear he says, hey, my dad's got this new GPS thing. It's awesome. We won't need a map. We'll have the GPS thing. And I'm like, cool. So I left my trusty map at home 
and we set off on the adventure. We had been lost for a while and the trail ended on the top of a mountain. Later we figured out that it was Cold Mountain and at that point we discovered that our packs, most of our packs were way too heavy. I mean one guy, his pack was so overloaded it looked like Samwise Gamgee's pack in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, he had frying pans hanging off the back of it, link sausages, literally a pair of old clunky gym shoes. I mean, I think he had a toaster and a small TV. It was crazy. Um, it was no surprise when he called, called it quits. Just on day two, uh, hiked out, got to his car and, and, um, and drove home. We, we somehow made our way to, to a nice looking trail um, that, that was going downhill, um, still lost as geese. Um, we found out later that it was the Art Loeb Trail. Um, problem is, it, it was starting to get dark and we had hiked miles and miles and um, our feet were screaming, our bodies were aching. Uh, there was there was no real place to make a camp on this trail. It was just tight. It was cliff this way and mountain that way. And uh, we we stopped to take a break um, at this small stream. Um, and one guy, one friend, uh, he sat down right in the middle of the trail. And I kid you not, he instantly fell asleep. He had been wearing tevas with this giant heavy pack, and his both of his feet were just one giant blister. Um, I took my shoes and socks off, sat on a rock beside the stream, and just put my burning feet uh, into this cold water. We were still lost, praying that the GPS system would finally kick in. The parables that Jesus tells, he tells some parables about lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin two sons, you know. a shepherd goes after the sheep, a woman just is in a reckless pursuit with her broom uh, to find her coin, uh, a father's heart aches uh, for the lost son. Um, Webster de defines uh, lost uh, in some interesting ways. Uh, it says, um, something lost is ruined or destroyed either physically or morally. Uh, something lost is hopelessly unattainable, as in a lost cause. Uh, something lost is no longer possessed, as in a lost reputation. Uh, not, uh, not made use of or claimed, uh, as in a lost opportunity. Uh, something lost is no longer known. Uh, a person lost is unable to find the way. In Jesus' story, the younger son is completely lost, and he's also alone, and it's his own fault. Like, he cut himself off from his father and from his family, and this, this request for his inheritance, like, that wasn't normal. And in fact, um, it was very offensive and disrespectful, and for the father, uh, it was probably very hurtful. And he takes this inheritance um, and he just, he just goes off in wild living 
town and, and, he, and he wastes it all. And, you know, Jesus tells this story in some pr- pr- pretty dramatic fashion. Like he gets to the very bottom, uh, the bottom of bottoms. Like he's in the pit with the pigs. He's living with the pigs. And that would say a lot to his, to his Jewish listeners. And then a critical thing happens. It's a key part of this story. Jesus says that he came to himself. He remembered who he was. And he realized where he was. He was reoriented. He found his bearings. And he knew where he needed to go. A lot of folks in our church are um, reading this book. Um, It's a Jim Harnish book. It's called Finding Your Bearings. Um, he, He says, In navigation, bearing determines a ship's location in relationship to true north. Finding our bearings is the way we locate where we are and set our course to get where we want to be. So, the son, uh, he wrote a speech. It's a speech for his father, and, and he rehearses it. And the first part is the address, which is simply father. Um, the second part is the confession. And he says, I have sinned. Um, the, the third part of his speech is, is contrition. He's like, I, I am not worthy. And the last part is his petition. Treat me uh, as if I was one of your hired hands. Well, uh, there's this guy named Jehoiakim Jeremiah. Uh, he said that I like what he said. The the definition of repentance is learning how to say daddy again. Now, he finds his way home. He finds his way back into the arms of his father. And the older brother is really ticked. The father begs him to come inside, begs him to come to the table begs him to come to the feast. Um, But he'll have none of it. Um, Instead, he starts um, rattling off his his work history. Like, here's my time card. You see how hard I've worked. You see the hours I've put in. Um, You know, he talks about um, his his loyalty. Uh, He he talks about the fact that um, he's always been obedient. And he says, you know, you never even gave me as much as a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. I tried to imagine that scene. And I wonder if there were um, tears in the father's eyes, if his lips started to quiver, as he realized that uh, his oldest son, 
His oldest son was completely lost too. You know, it's really important for us to know God's orientation. Where is, where is God on the map? I like what um, Alan Culpepper says. Um, he said, the joyful celebration begins as soon as the father recognizes the son's profile on the horizon. And so when I ask myself, where is God? God is there. God pursues us. God waits for us. And God invites all of us to the table. Christ our Lord invites to His table all who love Him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have not been faithful stewards of your creation. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Christ our Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by His blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at His heavenly banquet. Uh, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, uh, draw us together into your presence, into your power, into your mercy as we pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one loaf. The bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. And the cup over which we give thanks is a sharing in the blood of Christ.
This is the body of Christ given for you. And this is the blood of Christ given for you. Thanks be to God. Amen.